You may be seated. To begin with, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalms 139. In order to prepare our hearts for this message and this psalm this morning, I want to read a rather lengthy quote from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It comes from chapter 3, and he begins chapter 3 by saying this. He says, he says uh, what were we made for? His answer, to know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? The answer is to know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou sent. John 17, 3. He says, what is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Jeremiah chapter 9. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? The answer, knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. Hosea 6.6. 6. In these few, test, these few sentences, Packer goes on to say, we have said a very great deal. Our point is one to which every Christian heart will warm, though the person whose religion is merely formal will not be moved by it, and by thus indicating his unregenerate state. What we have said provides at once a foundation, shape, and goal for our lives plus a principle of priorities and a scale of values. Once we become aware, mark this sentence, once we become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You understand that God is sovereign over the affairs of men and what he's brought into your life is for your edification and growth and good, ultimately. As we know all God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purpose, right? Because those he called, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and that's the greatest good that could come out of anything, to be more like Christ. Then he goes on to say, the world today is full of sufferers from the wasting disease, which Albert Camus uh, termed absurdism, life is a bad joke, and from the complaint, which we may call Mary Antoinette's fever, since she found the phrase that describes it, nothing tastes. These disorders blight the whole of life. Everything becomes once a problem and a bore because nothing seems worthwhile as you get to the end of it. But absurdist tapeworms and Antoinette's fever are ills from which the nature, in the nature of the case, Christians are immune except for occasional spells of derangement. <laughs> I like that. Anybody ever have a spell of derangement? I know I'm, I've had one recently. Um, but it doesn't last. He says, derangement when the power of temptations presses their mind out of shape and thereby God's mercy do not last. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance 
And this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. Then he says this, and he ends this quote with this. He says, For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? You know, I've studied Scripture for 46, 7, 8 years. Who knows? Uh, I've lost track. But you know what? I'm still getting to know God, both in His Word and experientially. It's something that after 50 years of study and, and diligent study and preaching and trying to get to know God, there's still so much more to know. And that's the Christian life. There's never an end to your growth. You never get to a point where you just say, okay, I got it together. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> you know, there's no trial. There's no temptation. There's no, nothing that can come into my life that can disturb me. It's not true. You're continually being assaulted, whether by the devil or just the trials that God allows in your life. You're continually in that struggle, in that war. That's why Ephesians 6 is in the Bible. And You know, A.W. Tozer in his excellent book, Knowledge of the Holy, states what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How do you think about God? In your heart of hearts, what do you think about God? What do you know about Him? To be a fact, what do you base your life on in your understanding and knowledge of the Holy One? And then he went on to say, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant uh, message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more revealing than her words. A lot of times we just leave God out of the conversation, don't we? when he should be at the forefront of the conversation. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it should be all to the glory of God. Even the most mundane activity should be motivated and God should be at the center of it. And this morning we're going to look at a psalm that reveals the mind and heart of David towards God and why he was a man after God's own heart. You say, but, 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 but David caused 70,000 to fall in Israel when he took a sense. But David uh, killed Uriah, had Uriah killed. But, but David committed adultery and had 20 wives. And, but David was a man after God's own heart. And though David, like us, was a sinner of lusty proportions, he was a man who in his heart of hearts knew God and wanted to know more of God and passionately desired to bring God glory and praise. But like us all, he was sort of lame at it. Sometimes he would, sometimes he'd fail. And as you look back at your life, oftentimes you look and you just see that you're a big failure. You think you're a big failure. But what's in your heart towards God? How badly do you want to know him? How badly do you want to mature and grow in him and, and find him to be sufficient for everything? Life is flawed to begin with. That's why we need the Savior. And Psalms 139 reveals basically the heart of David directed by the Spirit of God. He speaks of God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6, of God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12, of God's omnipotence in verses 13 through 18, of God's holiness and hatred of sin in verses 19 through 22, and then he pleads for God's grace when he's done in the last two verses. 
just pleads with God's grace to lead him in the way everlasting. There's another phrase in there that I want you to just think about when he contemplates. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me. You know, they're like the sand of the seashore. And he says, and when I awake, I'm still with you. To me, that's just an incredible statement because David, for all intents and purposes, is just feeling like God should just leave him alone and let him die in his sin, right? And he's overwhelmed that every day God is with him and God walks through him, walks through all the trials and the tribulations of his life with him. Every moment, every day, every circumstance, deals with every attitude, every, you know, everything that's going on in David's life, God is right there with him. So we're going to look at that, or try to. Wish we had uh, a lot more time to do this, but to begin with, let read with me what David, by divine inspiration, says about God's omniscience. And Pastor Craig quoted some of these. He says, in verses 1 through 6, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Boy, that's scary. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand on me. It's kind of like he's describing a box, right? He says, such knowledge is too wonderful, incomprehensible for me. It is too high, I cannot attain to it. In other words, I can't understand it, but I revel in it. Now again, I wish I could spend four or five sermons on the psalm, but let's see if we can capture the heart of David towards God in, in a brief time we have. To begin with, David knows that God knows him in every intimate detail of his life. He searched him. He searched out every aspect and thought and attitude and action of David's life, and he still declares him a man after God's own heart. That should be one of the most comforting thoughts we can imagine as you read about David's life. He knew David in intimate detail. The Hebrew verb yada means to perceive, to understand, to know, to discern, to be known, to uh, it can speak of the intimacy, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. It speaks of knowledge gained through the senses and through personal experience. And here I believe it speaks of the intimacy David had with God, cultivated by a lifetime of seeking him and loving him and not doing it perfectly, but that was the intention of his heart. That was the goal to which he had set his life, to know God and to love God and serve God. And did he do it perfectly? No. Like all of us, he failed oftentimes. But it was still the goal. It was still the focus, the intention. Keep that in mind. David understands that God knows him in every fiber of his being with infinite understanding and knowledge. And 
The point is he still loves him. Read verses 17 and 18 carefully. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. You know, why don't you just reject, if you know me like that, why don't you just reject me and send me to hell? You ever felt like that? I know I have. But God's love being rich in mercy and great in love overcomes that when our heart is seeking after God. You know, God has searched and known his inner man. He knows his sitting down and his rising up. Verse 2, he understands his thoughts from afar. God is intimately acquainted with all his ways. Verse 3, he knows David's words before he speaks them. And then he just says, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You're omniscient. You know everything. And you still love me. <laughs> that should, again, bring great comfort to us. Now, is that how you and I know God? Or do we honestly think we're getting away with life? Do we think we're getting away with whatever we think we're hiding from God? You know, do you, do you have that kind of in your mind that, you know, if I do something in the dark, you know, if I steal my neighbor's car in the dark, that it's okay, you know, that God can't see? Um, do we know that God is omniscient? He knows every thought. He knows every deed. He knows everything we do. You know, do we live our life that way, or do we just sometimes give God a nod, but really mostly uh, doing our own thing? When we eat or drink, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, or whether, whatever we do, do we do it all to the glory of God, or is it really about us and our thing and what we want and what we perceive to be really important in life rather than God? Or is our goal to know God and to live in His presence? Do we... Recognize that our lives and times are in God's hands, that as verse 5 says, He has enclosed us behind and before. Think about this, behind and before. You either you're going backwards or forwards, but God still has you in His hands. It reminds you of John chapter 10, doesn't it? My sheep know my voice, and I hold them in my hand. The Father holds them in His hand, and no one can take them out of His hand. And, and You're behind and before, and then He's got a lid on it. That's kind of exciting if you love God. If you don't love God, it's kind of disturbing, to say the least. Uh, or if you're trying to be rebellious, or if you're trying to live in sin, it's a horribly disturbing thought, because God's not going to let you out of that box until he's done shaking you up to the point where you're willing to walk in there as his servant, someone who's seeking and going after the experience of knowing him and loving him. Is such knowledge too wonderful or incomprehensible or supernatural for us to comprehend and thus of necessity we must attribute it to the sovereign and supernatural creator and ruler of mankind? How small and limited is our God compared to the God presented in Scripture? Remember long time ago, there was a book written called uh, Your God is Too Small. Great book. I recommend you get, get it. I can't remember the author right offhand, but is your God too small? Or is he the God that's omniscient, that knows you through and through and still loves your sorry life? <laughs> sorry I said that, but, you know, 
it's, uh, I'm thinking of my own life, you know, it's like, he still loves me, even though he knows me, everything about me. I don't know, that, that messes with my mind. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible. It's too wonderful. You know, David expresses that. He says, too, such knowledge is too wonderful or incomprehensible for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. I just can't understand it, but I just revel in it. That's the wonderful thing about God being not one of us. Is his ways and his truth and stuff. We can understand it to a point, and then the after that point, you better just revel in it. And just go, wow, I don't understand predestination. I don't understand election. I don't understand my inheritance, what it's going to be totally. But you know what? I just revel in it. The last two chapters of Revelation, revel in it. Maybe that's why they call it revelation. But... Uh, it's an awesome, awesome consideration to just meditate on those thoughts. God is omniscient. Is he omniscient? Does he know you intimately? Can we say along with David, Behold, O Lord, you know it all? And maybe add to that, does that comfort you or disturb you? Now, the fact that God is omniscient because, secondly, he is omnipresent. You can't be omnipresent without being omniscient. But omniscience goes beyond just being omnipresent because God has known everything from before time began. And, and again, the, the, that's something we just revel in, not uh, completely understand. But now in my mind, these two attributes are very awesome and disturbing at the same time. Let's read about God's omnipresence. He says, where can I go from your spirit? God's spirit is omnipresent. He's not like the pantheists who say God is in everything. He is omnipresent. He is apart from his creation, but he is still present in it everywhere in the universe. God is not contained. God is infinite. God isn't confined to a place and time like us or like Satan or like the demons. But he says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? You ever want to just run out of God's presence somewhere? It doesn't work. Wherever you flee to, he's there. So don't waste your energy. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Because remember... His hands are in front and back and over you. You're encompassed in his hands. And then he says, and your right hand will lay hold of me or uphold me. And I, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the, high, the night is, not, is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And there he's speaking metaphorically of the, of the life we go through in this world. And, you know, it's just powerful stuff. Now, in my mind, these two attributes of God are at the same time the most awesome and disturbing of his character attributes. They're awesome in the fact that God's Spirit indwells us, as do the Father and Son, if you read John 14 and Ephesians 3 correctly, they're awesome in that God is 
always with me through trials and tribulations and temptations. There is no possible way he will ever leave me or forsake me, and he states so in Hebrews 13.5. They're awesome in that God knows all things. He knows my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, my motives. He knows that I love him often in spite of the way those things turn out. He knows my heart through and through, and he still chooses to set his love and affection on me. And yet, these two attributes are incredibly disturbing for the very same reasons. You know, as I honestly consider my heart and my thoughts and my actions, because every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful attitude, every sinful action is both known by God and done in His very presence. And I don't know about you, but that disturbs me greatly to realize that Every thought, every word, every action has an audience. And the audience is an audience of one, and it's God. And, you know, although I'm not saved by my works, they still count for something. They count for your eternal reward. And, and you know, it says that man will be saved as through fire and, and in 1 Corinthians 3, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to know what that means. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so my works are important. They don't save me, but they are important. And I want to please God by my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, and all those different things that, that uh, we fight with, we struggle with on a daily basis. I'm, I just, uh, you know, I, I look at my own situation and I'm just constantly fighting my attitude and actions to a certain extent, more attitude than actions, but it's, uh, you know, it's a constant struggle, and I want my life to be pleasing to God. I want Him to, as He observes my life, as He walks in and through my life, I want Him to be blessed, not disturbed, <laughs> like, what's wrong with this kid? And I'm his kid. You know, I mean, he's the ancient of days, and how old is 70 compared to eternity? We're all kids, right? So I want to get an ice cream cone, not a beating <laughs> or discipline. But anyway, where were we? Um, it's They can be both awesome and disturbing at the same time. And yet he still loves me. In Christ he has redeemed and forgiven me, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. There's nothing to get separated me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 39. And if that doesn't break your sinful heart and magnify the grace of God, nothing will. Nothing will. God knows me through and through, and he still loves me. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. But does that give me a license to sin, that grace may abound? Romans 6.2, may it never be. May Ganata. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's precisely what David is struggling with here, I think, in, in verses 7 and 8. He just says, where can I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? I kind of detect something in there that that there's times in David's life he'd just like God to leave him alone, right? He'd just love for God not to be there. How can I get away from you? 
But then he comes back to his senses. You know, this is that derangement that uh, J.I. Packer was talking about. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. Where do I get away from you? You know, hell will not be the absence of God. Hell will be administered by God. Let me read you a little passage. Um, you can just jot this down, but Revelation 14. You know, we think Satan, you know, as stupid as theologians have been, we think that uh, Satan sits at the door and, you know, he's there with his little pitchfork and his little red suit and sticking people in the, the behind as they go into hell. Uh, he's the one who is tormented there. In fact, he'll be the third occupant after the... the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet. But in Revelation 14.9 it says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone, now note this, in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. It will be not be the absence of God. It will be the presence of the wrath and punishment and hatred of sin of God. That's what hell will be. It's not a party with your buddies. It's not like, oh, all my drinking buddies will be there. No, they will be in torment. And God himself will be administering the torment. It says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. In other words, hang in there because this is one place you never want to be, ever. Just the consideration of it should make us break out in hives. You see, there is no location, be it heaven or hell, where the presence of God can be escaped. Therefore, David says this in verse 9. I love this of Psalms 139. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, and he says, if I can travel at the speed of light, that's what he's saying in a poetic way. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I could find the deepest whatever abyss that the sea has and I could hide there, God would still be there. He says, even there your hand will lead me. Now he's getting to the good part. Even there your hand will lead me. Now, David and the follower of Christ, this should bring great comfort to know that even there God's hand would lead us. And I love what he says next. He says, your right hand will lay hold of me or uphold me with your strong right hand. And he says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the night around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You see, because our God is omnipresent, He is with us anywhere and at any time and through anything. No matter where I am in this world or even in this universe for that matter, His hand will lead me his strong right hand will uphold me. Even metaphorically speaking, when the darkness and the 
trials of life overwhelm me and the light around me appears to be night and the darkness and the evil of this world are assaulting me relentlessly, God is there with me to stand with me in the battle. He is a warrior. You know, I love, I just got through reading the book of Joshua, my quiet time, and as Joshua is going, <laughs> going into the promised land, he, in chapter 5 he sees this, it was either an angel or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and I take it to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And Christ says, neither I've come to take over. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I love that. Not for you or against you, I've come to take over your life. I've come to take over the host of the warriors of Israel. I'm going to be the commander of the Lord of hosts. Joshua, you'll lead them, but I will be the one who takes over from now on. It's an amazing thing. That's what God wants to do in our life, right? He doesn't want us to just, every time we have a problem, run to him, but he wants us to allow him to take over our lives. That's why he indwells us. That's why he wants us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit, rather than walking on our own and grieving the Holy Spirit. And if you live long enough, you go through those situations in life, you just wonder how you're going to live through it. But you need to allow the Son of God to take control and take over. And you'll see you through it because we can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens us. What's that? Philippians what? 4.13. All right. Remember that. It'll get you through many a dark night. <laughs> you see, God's love for us is not conditional or circumstantial. He is in it with us in and through everything. He is omnipresent, and that should be our source of ready comfort, right? As we go through life's trials, and life is just, as Mark Twain put it, one darn thing after another, and uh, I readily agree with that, because it is, right? And that's the, uh, that's the exciting thing when the good things are rolling, but when the bad things are rolling, it's like... Wow, how am I going to stand up in this? Well, you're going to stand up because the Lord of hosts is with you because you're his son or you're his daughter and you're his child and he'll go through it with you. So we've got hope even in what appear to be hopeless type situations. Now, let's look at a third attribute of God. Not, not only is he omniscient, and omnipresent, but he's also omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Omniscience is all-knowing. Omnipresent is all-present. And omniscient, omnipotent is all-powerful. Look at what he says in verses 13 through 18. He says, You form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I love the way he describes that. It's so poetic. 
You know, David was the sweet psalmist, the sweet poet of Israel. He says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, or my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Oh, what a powerful, powerful thing. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. <laughs> I just love that last sentence. Anyway, um, you say I don't see omnipotence here. Well, let me ask you a question. What is more powerful than to be the originator and the creator and sustainer of life? What is more powerful than that? And here David focuses on his own creation, but the all-powerful God is the author and sustainer of all of life, both physical and spiritual. You know, Romans 1.20 reminds us, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his divine nature, having been clearly seen through what is made, he says, Therefore men are without excuse not to know God. God can be seen in the creation. Last night I was walking the dog about 10.30, and, you know, you just look up at the creation, and you're just in awe of God. You know, turn off the TV, get away from the screens, go out on your patio if you don't like walking, but go out on your patio and just sit there and contemplate and look at the stars for a while and realize they're not to be worshipped, as was part of pagan religions, but... You're to see the glory of God in that creation. And the more you see it, the more you'll praise and honor God. Anyway, Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus that all things were created through him and for him. You were created for Christ. That's why he created you. You say, why did God create the world? Well, he created it for himself. For himself and and uh, that's it. He created it because he wanted to. <laughs> you were wanted by God, and you come to God through Christ. In another psalm, Psalm 19, David announces the heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Not to see God in the creation is to be wrapped up in your sin. It's a horrible thing. And possibly the most profound verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, simply says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew would indicate he created it out of nothing. It was spoken into existence by the word of his power. That's incredible to think that you could just say a word, let there be animals. And you look at the almost infinite variety of animals. Let there be creepy, crawly, weird things. And there they were. There, weren't, there wasn't just one type of creepy, crawly, weird thing. There was millions and millions. And then there's the unseen and the invisible world that, that God created, thrones and dominions and authorities and, and on and on and on it goes. And all was spoken into existence by God. 
That is omniscience, or that is omnipotence. That's power. And all the universe is alive. You know, someday you read the book of Revelation, and it says the trees will clap their hands. Isaiah says that too. And, and everything that has that is here will praise God you read the first uh, four chapters four and five of Revelation, and that's not just a bunch of hooey. That's not just metaphorical. That is going to happen. You know, Jesus even said to the Jews, he said, if on the day he entered Jerusalem, he says, if these don't cry out, the stones would cry out. Why? Because there's, I don't know what kind of life is in them, but God created them, therefore they are supernatural and alive although they appear to us as being dead. But someday the whole creation, Romans 8 tells us, will come to life at the revealing of the sons of God. Just powerful thoughts. Don't, I mean, uh, you can disagree with me or not. I don't really care. But um, the world is supernatural at its core. It's alive. The stars have a certain kind of life about themselves. The universe is alive with God's power and presence and I don't know it's just sit down and just meditate on it sometime and think about it and the eternal gospel revelation 14 7 is fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water you know, but even beyond that is the spiritual life that God creates. You know, he gives everything physical life, but he, we as humans were created in what? The image of God, right? And that's not a physical image because God is spirit, so he, we must be created in the spiritual image of God. Therefore, you have spirit, which is fallen. That's what fell in the garden. That's why man died. He rebelled against God. He rebelled, rebelled against the being created in the image of God, and he wanted to be man who was his own God, you know, in essence. That's the lie. In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you can be like God. And, uh, but the wonderful thing is that he recreates us, doesn't he? We've been created physically. Mom and dad came together, and boop, there's the kid. And, uh, you know, wonderful thing and beautiful thing. It's one of the great miracles of life. And, uh, but uh, that person is spiritually dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, spirit now working the sons of disobedience. And then Paul says, and we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath. But then it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he loved his creation, he says, made us alive together with Christ. Well, in order to be made alive, you've got to be dead to begin with, right? That's why I've often said our world's preoccupied with zombie movies because we're walking dead men without Christ or dead women. And Christ recreates. He makes us alive in Christ, in himself. 
You know, I love 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17. It says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. God creates out of the deadness of nothingness spiritually and gives you spiritual life. That's the power of God. That is, you know, we, we repeatedly, as we went through Matthew, we said, you know, there's tons of miracles in Matthew. I won't say hundreds, but the implication is there was hundreds and thousands of miracles that Jesus did in Judea and, and the outlying areas. But the greatest miracle that ever is is when God opens up a stone-cold human heart. Because that's the only miracle that lasts. He can cure you of anything. You can be cured of anything and you'll die of something else. But if he cures your heart, the sin of your heart, you're going to live forever in his presence. And it'll be the most awesome life you can even begin to contemplate if you read Scripture carefully. You know, men are commanded to worship the omnipotent God of creation. Both physically and spiritually, he creates his power is clearly seen. Men are without excuse. But look for a moment at how personal David makes this. And take notice of the sovereign, omnipotent hand of God as he brings forth a human life. Verse 13, he says, you form my inward parts. Literally, you form my kidneys. I don't know why the kidneys were so exciting, but uh, that's what it says. He says... Uh, you, form, you could say you formed my organs, you formed all the systems that go ahead and make up life, all the functions that make life possible. And, you know, contrary to evolution, one system didn't come up, you know, all of a sudden there's lying a couple pairs of lungs there and some animal eats them and they grow in him and, and he becomes, he starts breathing or something. I don't know how he started breathing before he ate the lungs, but anyway, they all had to be there in the beginning for life to be there. Everything has, your human body, you cannot function without your heart. The heart had to be there. You cannot function without your lungs. Your lungs had to be there. Your nostrils had to be there so you could breathe to get something to your lungs. You had to have an esophagus to, be, whoop, to begin with because you got to eat, right? You had to have legs to walk. You had to have arms to do things. They all had to be there all at once at the moment of creation. It could not have evolved. It's impossible for things to evolve. There's no evolution going on today, and there never will be as long as God is the creator. And we know that. Thank God we know that. But David says, you form my inward parts. You form the systems that make my life work. You... You wove me, you put me all together in my mother's womb. This is the thing our culture no longer wants to hear. As we act as if we are the ones who determine who lives and who dies. What a hideous culture we've come up with. Pretty soon it will be the older folks that get eliminated. Now that I'm in that category, I'm not that excited about it. Although the end result will be fine to go with the Lord. But we did not invent life. We did not determine life. We should not determine who lives and who dies. That's evil. That's Satan, the prince of death. He's a murderer from the beginning, a liar from the beginning. And 
man is bought into his lie, and it's one of the most hideous things that can, you can imagine. Life has become so cheap. You know, some crazy kid would go in and shoot a bunch of people. Why didn't he just shoot himself if he's so despondent on life? You know, instead of taking down everybody else with him. But we, that's the evil part of our nature. We want to make others suffer because we're suffering. And oftentimes that's the case. And sometimes it, unfortunately, drives people to do hideous things. Because we've got the prince of this world who is Satan, John 14, driving people to do things that are just terribly evil, just horribly evil. And it'll continue happening. It'll probably get worse as the end times approach. But we have the solution, don't we? We've got the gospel. We've got the good news. And the good news changes hearts. The good news, God creates a new heart and a new attitude and a new person who's actually got a reason for living. He's not despairing to where he wants to kill himself or kill somebody else. He's full of life. God gives him life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. It's the beauty of God's power and his omnipotence as he changes the lives of people. So powerful, it's almost unimaginable. You know, here... Uh, in verse 15, listen to David describe life. He says, My frame or my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And euphemistically, he's talking about his mother's womb. You know, as God molded and shaped this new life, this, this David who would eventually be the king of Israel. And, and he says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. You know, there's a you know, a baby doesn't become a baby. A baby is a baby as soon as the sperm and the egg unite, period. There's no other view of that biblically. And he says, uh, and in your book, and this blows my mind, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Metaphorically, David describes his formation in his mother's womb, and because God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, he was witness to it all. And the upstart of it is that I am a creation of God. Think about that. I am a creation of God. What a wonderful thought. First, uh, Second Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Ephesians 2.10, we're his masterpieces. He uses that word, Greek word for masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. We're a creation of God. I am his creation. I'm his handiwork. In fact, God had proclaimed David's life. God had recorded his days when as yet there was not one of them. We call that election. We call that predestination. And, and though I don't completely understand it, again, I revel in it. I hope you do too. This didn't happen by accident. This didn't just happen by happenstance. God orchestrated it. One of the greatest truths in the Bible is that I have been chosen by God in Christ from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God in Christ. 
predestined to be an adopted son of God, it tells me in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, and many other places. My name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17, 8 tells. I don't know, does that give you a sense of importance? Or do you go, oh, that, that can't be fair. What about so-and-so? Well, I don't know about so-and-so, but I do know about me. I do know that I've been chosen from before the foundation of the world. I know that my name was written in his book, the days that were ordained for me from before my conception even. And rather than fighting the idea because I can't understand it fully, the infinite omniscient, omnipotent mind of God, I revel in the mystery of his love expressed towards me. I am chosen from, by God from eternity past. I hope that just boggles your mind. I hope you walk out of here on cloud nine because of that. And if you don't know that, you need to know it. Because God wants your life, too, if you're here and he hasn't got it yet. And David just kind of revels in this whole thing. I love 17 and 18, and we've referred to it many times as we've been talking. He says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. He says, how vast is the sum of them. You know, sit down sometime and just meditate on God. And just see if your brain feels like exploding. He says, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. You ever tried to count the sand? You can't even count stuff in a little bottle, right? God is infinite. He's fathomless. Is that right? Anyway, sounds good. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God, you are so incredibly awesome. And every day, you get up with me and walk through the day with me. I don't understand that, how you can walk with such a mess up like me. Beloved, to meditate on the person of God and his divine attributes and his love for you is the most incredible thing you or I will ever do. I love what the song says, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best, tis an ocean full of blessing, tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory because it lifts me up to thee. Contemplate God and contemplate his love for you. It'll just blow your mind. You know, what wonderful truths. And the Hebrew word has the idea of being incomprehensible, that you can never completely understand them. Our God is omniscient. He knows us through and through. Our God is omnipresent. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He, has omnip he is omnipotent. He has both given us physical life and he has redeemed us from our sin and given us eternal life. We are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus. Now on that high note, read verses 19 through 22. And I take this to mean God's holiness. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. All of a sudden it's like, what? What's he talking about? What's he talking about, Willis? You know. It's, 
It's, uh, depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. David is so consumed with the glory of God, he would like to see every one who rebels against the glory of God just eliminated from this planet. It'll happen someday, but not now. Do I not hate those who hate you, and I do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. He's saying, I can't hate sinners, and I can't hate sin any more than I can hate with all my heart, with all my life, with all my soul. He says, they have become my enemies. Now, I'm not going to defend the fact that God hates sin, but I am going to ask you a few questions on the, as we contemplate this. This kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? Sort of out of place. You know, we're talking about the omniscience, the, um, the presence, the omnipotence of God, and all of a sudden David just lamb paced every sinner that you can imagine. We kind of shy away from this kind of thinking and language in our sin-compromised, tolerating PC society. This passage is almost bordering on a hate crime in some Christians' minds. And Pastor Craig's going to be talking about that later on. But let me ask you a question. What would our world be like if God were all the things we just talked about, omni, everything, and he loved evil? What would our world be like? What if God were an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, evil one? You see, our world's bad enough the way it is, right? Satan and his demons are confined to space and time. They're just one individual. Satan can, you know, how he indwelt the Antichrist and the false prophet at the same time. He had to have them in the same room because so he could go from one to another. He's confined to space and time. So are his demons, and there's a limited amount of demons that can possess people and use people and influence people and so on and so forth. Man is somewhat limited by law, apparently, uh, although we all break it all the time. But uh, what if God were an omnipotent evil? What would your life be like? You probably wouldn't be alive by now, but what would your life be like? Think about it. God didn't hate sin, and God didn't hate sinners, and declare us his enemies, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love towards us, and while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Uh, what if God was an omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent evil? Would life as we know it even be worth living in any respect? Imagine a world with no restraint, a world infinitely empowered to do evil. It would have extinguished itself eons ago. Man would have just killed himself and, you know, we're bad enough as it is at killing each other. But what if God was empowering that? What if God was this horrible, infinite evil? I mean, you just contemplate that for a while and you just have to thank God that he hates sin and sinners. I mean, just, you know, thank God for his holiness. Thank God for his justice and judgment. You know, thank God that he will judge sin and sinners. Thank God that he hates my sin 
or life would not even be worth living. Evil would envelop the world even worse than it has, and someday it'll get to the point where it'll be just like the days of Noah where the thoughts of men were continually evil. Read Genesis chapter 6. And so David ends this psalm by pleading and petitioning God for his grace, and I love this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. You know, he doesn't just say, try all those sinners out there and know their anxious thoughts and deal with them and get rid of them. He says, you know, wow. Anyway, um, he says, know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. And I take that to mean that he just petitions himself for God's grace. So, let me just close by saying this. Sorry we're taking so long. But, you know, the Christian, I want to just challenge you to pray that prayer at the end. You know, have God search you and know you and See if there's any anxious way in you and lead you in the way everlasting. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, uh, please forgive me for taking so long, but um, you need to know Christ. You need to be led in the way everlasting. You need to give your life to Him because He is the Savior. He is the God who is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. And He can give you a new heart and a new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time and uh, just seem to be lost in your presence and your person. And Lord, that's a good thing. And so uh, please bless each one of us as we go and we consider these thoughts and uh, let you be at the forefront of our thoughts. For in Christ's name, amen.